Hi, and welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today I am so excited to bring to you a conversation with Crystal Echohawk, perfect companion piece to our cultural appropriation episode as well. But we're just so excited to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. I can't wait for everyone to learn more about you and your work. And personally, I'm just really excited because if I'm really honest, I have not had the opportunity to have a conversation with a Native American person about what it's like to be a Native American in this country. So I'm really grateful that you are willing to come on the show. And one of the things Misasha and I always say is that we never expect anybody to talk and be representative of anything other than their personal experience. You also happen to be in an incredible position where you do work in this field of advocating for Native American culture and respect. And so I feel like we get the chance to talk to you from all different sides. And so thank you again for being here. Would you tell us a little bit about your work, who you are, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to say thank you so much for inviting me to be on your podcast. And and you are not alone. Nearly 80% of Americans know little to nothing about Native peoples and certainly haven't talked to a Native person, at least that they're aware of. And so that's sort of the reality that we're dealing with. So yeah, no, it is just, we love being able to be invited into these spaces and these circles and really just about building understanding and getting to know each other. So this is great. So I, my name is Crystal Akawak. My Pawnee name is Kiharu Hatua, which means in our language, it means lights in the room woman. And, you know, I am Kikahaki band. Our reservation is here in Oklahoma. Our original homeland was in the Kansas and Nebraska areas. And then we were, we had our own trail of tears. We were marched down into Oklahoma, kind of, I believe around 1873 ish. And, you know, now we have a little postage stamp of a reservation in just, you know, probably about 30 minutes away from Stillwater, Oklahoma. So, and I'm talking to you today from our national headquarters in downtown Tulsa. And yeah, so that's a little bit about who I am. I mean, just as in terms of a a citizen of my, the Pawnee Nation, and and I'm also a mother, (laughs) which is a big part of who I am and, and brings so much perspective to my work. So, you know, in terms of the work I do, I'm executive director of Illuminative, and we are a relatively new national nonprofit organization. We are entirely Native-led, and we really were born out of a research project that I did that my team and I co-designed and we co-led called the Reclaiming Native Truth Project. And it was the largest public opinion research project ever conducted about Native peoples, and we did that from 2016 to 2018. And we did the project because I think as Native people working across different professions, we constantly, no matter what issues we were advocating on, working on, and then I think in our own personal lives, constantly feel this level of invisibility. We, throughout society and in the work that we're doing, or we're constantly faced with sort of discrimination and racism or people mocking us, right? And mocking our children. And I think that's just really from sort of these deep personal places and also from the standpoint of being advocates for our people that we formed this project and wanted to get into the minds of what do Americans really think about Native peoples and why is that? And how does that manifest itself in terms of the way that we are treated and the way that institutions treat us? And so that we could really begin to not only really map that and understand it, but how do we then change it? And so out of that incredible massive research project, Illuminative was really born to kind of take the findings 
of that work and really look at how do we change the narrative about Native peoples? How do we educate Americans you know, across this country and really change not only the way they think about us and the way that institutions think about us, you know, but how do we transform that and really move forward into a place where Native Americans are really not only respected and included, but are really, you know, just a kind of seen and part of a, a vital fabric of this country. My brain just kind of exploded with a ton of questions, and yet I have all these other questions I need to ask too. I guess in that, for your research project, what were the things that you found the perception of Natives were in this country right now? That we don't exist. We're literally invisible. And that was our biggest finding. We are literally invisible. And 78% of Americans know little to nothing about Native peoples. And many, a very significant portion of that aren't sure if we exist. So if you don't live anywhere in proximity to a reservation, say you're out on the East Coast or other parts of this country, we're not present. So you're not even sure if we still exist. And many just thought, well, if they do exist, they must be a dwindling population because we don't see or hear about them anywhere. And as we began to really explore that, you know, we found that 72% of Americans rarely or never encounter information about Native people in anywhere. In this society where we're inundated constantly with information, we don't show up. So as we kind of went into that and really began to kind of unpack that, what we found is that 87% of schools in the United States don't teach about Native peoples past 1900. And so generation after generation of Americans are coming out of our schools. And when you were kind of relegated to being like ancient Rome, Greece, like, you know, if you don't, nobody is taught about that we're living, breathing human beings today doing things. And usually the last data point is like 1890 wounded knee for people. And that was really struck me because I can't tell you how many times in my life and my family, my daughter has been asked, do you still live in a teepee? And I, you know, people get really mad, but now it's like, wait a minute, I get it now. It's not that this person necessarily is setting out to really be hurtful or racist or whatever. That's literally the last data point they had on us was probably somewhere in elementary middle school. And that's it. And, you know, 27 states don't even mention natives in their curriculum. Here in Oklahoma, there's 39 tribes in the state. We represent about 10% of the state population. So we're one of the larger states populations statewide. And yet we're only represent 0.8% in within social studies curriculum. So even in a state here where, I mean, reservations are everywhere. Many Oklahomans, I mean, they don't learn about us. And so that was kind of like one insight into that data point. The other parts is, as we looked at representation and TV and film, our representation is somewhere between zero to 0.04% of all representation. And so just in that sliver, then we find that the majority of that is actually really problematic. It's these kind of stereotypical tropes of the magical mystical Indian, or we're drunks, or we're savages, or you name it's usually the negative stuff. And it's all pre 1900. So not contemporary. And the other thing that just blew my mind, it was a study done by Dr. Stephanie Freiberg, who's a member of the Tulalip tribes, um, who's at the University of Michigan now, found that when you type in Native American um, into Google, 95% of those images will come up being pre-1900, and they will also be of men. So when you start to realize this is big, like the invisibility, the erasure of Native peoples, it's about systems, it's about education, it's about popular culture and it's about media and it's literally perpetuating sort of the invisibility of erasure. And so most Americans cannot visualize what a contemporary native person is. 
And so, you know, it's like, I see a lot of, you know, I mean, like that's why people just don't know. But what we found through our research with the top social scientists in the country is that invisibility actually serves to create bias. It creates bias and it really starts to fuel racism and a gross misunderstanding that is actually very harmful, not only in terms of the way people interact with Native peoples, but the way it manifests itself in court decisions, the way they're made in the federal courts, to Congress, to all different sectors of society. And that's what this research really showed. I had no idea that the Native population was 10% of Oklahoma's population. Like, that's a large number. So what percentage of the Native population lives on reservations versus, I don't know what you even call it, like in cities or in contemporary life? I don't even know how to approach that languaging and asking that question. Yeah, no, and you're totally good with it. And, you know, and the one thing I always want to point out to people is like, if any question, there's no stupid question, right? As long as it's a couch with respect. And that's what I always want to encourage people, non-Native people, like there's not a bad question if your intentions are good. So don't worry about it. But like right now, I mean, most estimates are that 72% of Native peoples actually live in cities now um, and have moved away from the reservation. And so you kind of look at that, you know, percentage, the math, what is it, 28% roughly live on, on reservations. And so, you know, that's a big demographic shift. And it's been going on for a while. I mean, the government, you know, going back into the kind of 1950s was very intentional and actually had a relocation program. Most Americans don't know that where they were really giving these sort of incentives to move Native peoples off of their reservation lands in the cities with promises of jobs and life was just going to be fantastic. And they moved all these people into cities like Chicago, like Tulsa, like Los Angeles. You'll see those are kind of the bigger centers of Denver. And then they left them with nothing. No, there were no jobs and whatnot. And so you kind of, that's why you started to see some of these big demographic shifts. But I think also you know, it's so a lot. Some reservations are really challenged with economic opportunities. I mean, there's real reasons why it can be sometimes challenging, but that doesn't mean that those people living in those urban cities still don't have that connection to their homeland. And that's the seat of their tribal nation. And so I think that's really important to understand that it's not just a clear separation, right? You know, I've lived all over the United States, but, you know, Pawnee is where I'm from. And many Native people will make you know, it, it's such an important part of their life to find those times to go home and reconnect with family for cultural events, for ceremonies, or just to go home and visit. And so I think that's, it's a very sort of dynamic relationship between urban Indians and those back in the, on the reservation. I mean, it speaks to that need for humans to belong, right? And I think that that is such a, an important part of thriving. And in fact, I remember like one of our friends here belongs to the Kiowa Nation. And so talks about bringing his, I mean, they're mixed race, I don't know, race, is that the right even terminology? Like children and wants to bring them back to the powwows from Denver down to Oklahoma. But like that sense of that pull to our native countries, when you have that within the United States versus the majority of people, obviously, are like, you know, Misasha and I are both half Japanese. Half of our culture requires, you know, big, long trips. Yeah. You know, that sense of belonging is really important. So what is life when you said the economics of a reservation can be challenging? Is it a self-contained unit? Like, what is life on a reservation like? Yeah, and I think, you know, the best way to describe it is actually to take a step back and realize that there's 573 federally recognized tribes. These are nations. And so I think that's the thing that where schools fail and not teaching is that there are literally nations within this country. They are actually independent sovereign nations, 573 that are in this country, and they have their own 
systems of government, right? They have their own elected officials. I mean, I'm literally a dual citizen. Any native person enrolled in a federally recognized, we are all dual citizens. We're citizens of our tribal nations and we're citizens of the United States. And I think that's the fundamental thing people don't understand, right? The reservation is, you know, so you have the nation, right? We have our sovereign nations. And then what the United States did was as they came in and took our land, whether it was actually just taking it or creating treaties, breaking them and taking it anyways, you know, they created reservations. So the federal government created these little land settlements where they would eventually kind of put different tribes. So I think that's really important, right? And where reservations are is just a small sampling of what those tribal nations, what our traditional homelands were originally were. I mean, when you think about my tribe, you know, Pawnees, our land was actually in Kansas, Nebraska. We were hunters, but we were also, you know, farmers. I mean, and we moved around a lot and we got moved down onto this little tiny postage stamp of a reservation, I believe, where it's about 786 contiguous acres today. And, you know, I think we had, you know, just over, you know, 600. <laughs> Looking at my colleague, who's also Pawnee, you know, she's the historian of our group. But, you know, I think we had just over 600 Pawnee left by the time of the turn of the century, around 1900. I mean, that's how many of us died off, you know, through all of these things. And so, you know, that's important to understand when we talk about reservations, that there is this history, right, that of what they are, but that truly they are the seats of these tribal nations. And so every tribal nation is different. And I think that that's an important thing, because I think we get oftentimes like one picture of what a reservation must be like, and oftentimes that's Pine Ridge. That's the one that seems to get on TV the most. And But every reservation is different, but oftentimes, you know, you are dealing with really some of the highest rates of poverty, oftentimes on native reservations, because typically where our reservations ended up being put were places that were really geographically isolated. Oftentimes they gave us the worst parcels of land that didn't have any natural resources or good access to, you know, things that we needed. So oftentimes because of that, it's, you know, of the remoteness and other things that sometimes those issues of, of just basic infrastructure can be really challenging. I mean, there's some really, you know, underdevelopment that we have that people would be shocked. I mean, there's still elements of different, you know, reservations that don't have running water and electricity. I mean, that's a real thing. And for certain places like, you know, on the Navajo reservation um, down in Arizona. So, you know, but other reservations are doing a lot better. And then a lot of times it's because of proximity to major markets where they're able to launch, whether it's, you know, tribal gaming or, you know, other types of diverse businesses where there's more access to market. So just it really, really depends. But they're each 573, they're all different. They all speak, they have their own languages, their own customs, their own cultures, and their ways of governing themselves. What are some of the most vibrant traditions of your nation that you enjoy celebrating? Wow. I mean, I think for us, you know, we're starting, you know, we have certain dances that our Pawnee people, you know, do, and I'm just starting to learn about them. I mean, it's so interesting. I grew up away from Pawnee most of my life, and it's really later in life that I, you know, really, I think with great intentionality, I think becoming a mom really was like, I want this for not only for myself, but I want this for my daughter. And so I've really been kind of going back and learning more, you know, about our dances. We have, you know, traditional dances that happen, but also we have our, what we call our homecoming. And it's, you know, like a powwow, but it gets started, you know, right around, uh, right after World War II. And it was really started to welcome, you know, this, our soldiers home because, 
Pawnees and, and also, you know, Native Americans actually per capita, we have the highest rates of service. You know, so we had a lot of our men coming home from war. And so they started this to kind of bring people home to welcome them back. And it's it's carried on ever since. And so it is a really special time of year to come home. We always have it right around the 4th of July and everybody has their camps and everybody sets up and they always set up in the same places and people cook and they visit, you know, and you have the dances going on and there's softball tournaments and relay races and gossiping, and you know, bickering amongst relatives. It's just kids everywhere and it's really wonderful. I think the other things that I love that my aunt Deb, who's everyone's aunt back home, is really working hard to bring back our traditional seeds and our corn. And so she started kind of bringing these community events together where, you know, we get to come and actually after they harvest the corn, kind of open it up and help her sort of identify the seeds and really kind of learn more about bringing back our traditional foods. So it's been really fun to kind of start, you know, trying to to learn more about our ways and certainly, you know, having my daughter participate in that. That's really cool. I mean, so this whole conversation so far, we've been referring to everybody as Native Americans. And I know when I grew up, it was like Indians, right? And then I know in Canada, they've changed from Indians to Natives to Aboriginals to First Nations. Like, And then when Misasha and I talk about Black Americans, you know, people have been renaming minorities forever. And so is the proper terminology now Native Americans? And what is the connotation and the difference between when people say Indians versus Native Americans? Yeah. You know, that's like one of the top questions we always get. And, you know, I think and, you know, we as Native people are a diverse population. We're very opinionated. <laughs> so you're never going to get an agreement on what is the proper term. It's always going to be kind of a little bit relative to you speak with. But I think, you know, overall, it's more appropriate to say Native American or American Indian or native peoples is cool too. And, you know, I think Indians is really, there's been just more like, don't use that. You know, I think that's really where it's kind of pushing away for non-natives, get away from just saying that. And really, you know, Native Americans, American Indians, native peoples, even indigenous peoples. You know, I really encourage people around the native American terminology myself. I personally, when I think about indigenous peoples, I kind of think more beyond the borders of the United States. And when I think of Native Americans, I really think about the original peoples of what is now the United States. And Indians is just, you know, there's a lot of, you know, terminology, I mean, that was just a crazy name that Christopher Columbus <laughs> is misguided genocidal ways, right, and ended up coming up with. And so, you know, I think that's really important. I think that it's also really important as people you know, I mean, talking generally about the group, but it's if you ever encounter a native person and you're talking with them, ask them what tribe they are, right? And that's first and foremost, because, you know, I was just visiting with one of our team members, our colleagues today, and she was like, yes, you know, my in-laws were asking me if I speak Native American. <laughs> and it's, you know, because people think, and that's actually like, you just speak Native American when actually there's 573 tribes and they all have different languages. So I think that's Really, when you meet someone, like, what tribe are you? That's great. You know, that's kind of the first point of identification. And then after that, I would encourage Native American. That's great to hear. I mean, you just mentioned Christopher Columbus. So I kind of have to ask, and Misasha threw this question in too, but, you know, how do you, Indigenous Peoples Day, how do you explain like that or Thanksgiving from the Native American perspective? Yeah, I mean, so... With, in terms of Christopher Columbus, I mean, it's just one of the biggest lies ever told. It's one of these, the biggest sort of fabrications ever. And, you know, we all grew up with, he discovered America and the ships and 
all of this stuff. He never even made it here. You know, he was down in the sort of like the West Indies and, you know, he never even made it here. So he didn't discover anything here. But I mean, he was a genocidal maniac. I mean, the amount of just slaughter and the women he raped and just the torture, I mean, the cruelty, it just what he did to the Taino people. And you think about all of that. He was just murderous thug. Right. And not very smart because he didn't even land where he thought he was supposed to land. And so it's just a mystery as to why we're just hanging on to this notion or even for Italian-Americans who really feel like, well, if you're taking that away, that's a direct you know, threat at us. And it's like, no, why are you wanting to celebrate? This is like celebrating Hitler. This is really the same thing, right? When there's all these other fabulous Italians that we, you could celebrate on that day. You know, this is someone that really, it's the easiest equation is Hitler. And for Native peoples, you know, would Jewish people in this country stand for us having, you know, Hitler Day? Absolutely not. You know, and so it's really, it's just, again, it's people, it's that invisibility and erasure that kind of this gut punch where people just can't seem to let go of stuff like that. Because what we found with that invisibility and that erasure, it just, it dehumanizes us. And it just sort of makes like, well, why can't you guys just be okay with it? And it's like, well, you wouldn't be okay if that was, a murderer of your people, where you come from, you wouldn't want them celebrated, you know, and I think it's, so it's really, that's why I love these opportunities to talk with folks, like, we need to build empathy, right? This isn't just an issue of political correctness. I mean, this is really kind of putting our, you know, everyone putting their shoes in the Native people and thinking, wow, okay, I wouldn't want to, you know, someone who committed acts of genocide to be celebrated either. And I think, you know, in looking at that movement around Indigenous Peoples Day, this is about celebrating the resilience and the strength and the vibrancy of indigenous peoples, of native peoples. And native peoples have made incredible contributions in this country. You know, going back all the way to the constitution and so many of the foods that make up the base of the American diet to, you know, we have amazing, you know, doctors and scientists and professional athletes and people out in the world doing incredible things today. And it's really, you know, that opportunity to understand that doesn't matter where you stand in this country today, you're standing on native land, right? And that just wasn't sort of given up. I mean, it was taken. Every treaty in this country was broken. I mean, to really kind of take that moment and understand that this country would not exist if it wasn't for native peoples and the sacrifices that they made and they, what they've had to endure. I mean, my goodness, to just give a day to give thanks <laughs> and sort of not only acknowledge what the history, because I think it's important, but let's also, it's about moving forward together and how do we celebrate together, you know, native peoples, but also us moving forward as a very diverse country. And I think that, you know, I'm really hopeful that the momentum will continue to build to see it adopted everywhere and eventually for Columbus Day just to go. I love that. That's great. You mentioned athletes. Me, Sasha, do you want to ask your question? Oh, yes. I've been waiting to ask this question because we are a big sports family. And I feel like for people who are somehow there's like a carve out for sports or entertainment where people are totally okay with being completely racist when it comes to your favorite team. So my husband and I, well, our whole family were watching, you know, the Major League Baseball playoffs and you see the Braves fans doing the tomahawk chop, which just... I mean, whatever, blows my mind in this day and age. But you've got the Washington Redskins. And we had someone who wrote in to the podcast who was mentioning their school mascot. And they were trying to change that from being sort of an offensive portrayal of a Native American to something else. And it basically got voted down. And the white 
families at the school were sort of cheering because that's how the school, you know, that's how the mascot's always been. And the native people who had come to speak in support of changing that were sort of just left sitting there. So I was so curious to hear your thoughts on that. Like, how can we talk about that? Well, it does boggle the mind. I mean, it's, I think we're starting to reach a critical mass in this country that we understand that blackface is wrong, as an example. People have lost their jobs over it, right? I mean, how many things, just think about the examples in the last few years from Megyn Kelly to, you know, think about the governor of Virginia. I can't remember where, right? I mean, like you kind of think about all these big instances where people are like, oh my gosh, this is wrong. There's outrage. Something happens. And now, but every week, especially this time of year, you turn on the TV and you watch people in red face doing things like the tomahawk chop, you know, fake headdresses, red face, running around, acting a certain way, like all of this fan behavior. And it's a national pastime. It's accepted. It's not only professional sports, it's college sports. It's, you know, kind of K through 12 sports where it's taught. And it's just, again, it's like, where's the disconnect? And that's where our research again really comes in. And again, it's just that sort of invisibility and erasure of people not being able to see us who we are today. And that invisibility serves to really dehumanize that that's where the disconnecting point often is. And and so that's why it's so important, right? Just the sheer act, like I get chills and I every time I have an opportunity to talk to people get an opportunity like this, because in this moment, ladies, you're creating visibility for Native peoples. And I'm so deeply grateful because i that's what our research shows, that as we can get more visibility for contemporary Native people to just see us that we're human beings. <laughs> I'm a mom. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm like others. And, you know, and I think just from that standpoint, like, you know, most Americans really just do think that that's somehow honoring us. And I would just always tell people, you know what, really put yourself and just imagine that that, imagine your children, and imagine somebody doing something that is making, did you say, you know, you have Japanese, you know, descent. Imagine somebody putting on something so horribly racist and doing that in front of your children. And, you know, and I think for all of us, we all love our children, right? We all love our children. We want them to be safe. We want them to be protected. We want them to be environments where they feel safe and they feel honored and they're not being bullied. They're not being taunted. They're not being made fun of. And we all want that, you know? And so just then kind of, it's always that point of empathy. Step into the shoes of a Native American mom or imagine your children being a Native American child and then putting them out in the middle of that. And it's horrifying. It's really, really horrifying and hurtful. And that is the point of just, you know, I'm like, stop, drop, and roll everyone and just put yourself into someone else's shoes of what that, that would feel like to be bullied and taunted and made fun of. And then to be told, you know, when you say, look, that's hurtful, that's racist, please don't do that. And they're like, oh, you don't know. We're going to do it anyways, right? Actually, we took a poll over here and a few people said that they didn't think it's racist. So we're just going to believe them, even though you just told us it's racist. I mean, that's the thing, you know, that we're constantly dealing with is that Native peoples, we are diverse. And there are some Native Americans that are flying with these mascots, right? But how many more Native Americans do you, I mean, it's a majority of Native Americans that have said it was racist. Like, what's our tipping point that we need to just say, this isn't right? Did we take a poll on the N-word? It's amazing, but I think it's so wrapped up in money and these sports. But I think to really, you know, one, just to change it is it's just, it's that gut check as a human being, as a parent, 
you know, or just imagine yourself, you wouldn't want to be put through that. So it's just about, you know, how do we create the world we want to live in, right? Where we just have some basic respect for one another. I think the pushback I've heard is so many white people are like, well, but I'm just doing it to celebrate. But yet it's not. And so one of the things Misasha and I talked about, I think it was last episode, was, you know, talking about you can't distill the richness of a culture into something as simple as a tomahawk chop. Certainly never paint your face the color that is representative of somebody else. But some of the things, I mean, even when it comes down to Halloween costumes, the feathered headdress, and I'm, or like they make it sexy now in these popular photos and all that sort of stuff. You know, what does it feel like really to see white people dressed like that? And what is the significance of some of these native symbols that are popularized that people are missing? It is so hurtful. It makes my blood boil. It's so hurtful because, you know, especially like, and this is so timely because we actually were the other day going on to one of the big Halloween stores and, and looking at all the online costumes and the women's. And we were both like angry and laughing and crying and ang because the comments, I think we were laughing at the customer comments because she's like, God, you're an idiot. Like really? There, it was like this it barely covered her, you know what? Like, I mean, it was so skimpy. And she was like, oh my gosh, I could wear this out at night. We're like, oh my gosh, what are you thinking? But, you know, it's just this over-sexualization of Native women. And, you know, our Native women face the highest rates of sexual assault and rape and murder. And, you know, I mean, there's over 5,700 missing and murdered Indigenous women in this country. You know, more than 90% of women in one survey recently said that they had been sexually assaulted. Two thirds of these perpetrators are non-Native people. And the problem is, is that when you look at representation in society of Native women, it's scantily clad, you know, it's this sort of kind of fantasy thing. And these women go out and, you know, I mean, that's what's being pushed in the Halloween industry. And, you know, as Native women, I mean, we've traditionally, we're respectful, right? That traditional dress is modest, you know, it's those things. And it's so insulting to see us just so over-sexualized. And then knowing that what is really happening to our women in our communities and to see this sort of commodification of who we are. And then you start connecting it. I mean, I, you know, it's some research that we're really starting to get into, right? Again, about how these kind of things in popular culture and society that kind of get put out there, well, how does that relate to realities of what's happening to our people? And I think that there's a real direct correlation with that. And so again, it's just about having respect, you know? Would you want your, your family portrayed as sort of naked, half naked, and you know, or whatever your faith is? Would you want your faith mocked where, you know, if you're Christian or Buddhist that suddenly, you know, you're like wearing like a skimpy bikini and, you know, I mean, just kind of think about the things that you hold near and dear in terms of your values around your faith, your family, your representation as a woman. How do you want to be portrayed? Because I think that's just, it's constantly that simple equation and it's not honoring. If you want to honor us, then let's talk about, you know, Joy Harjo is the new U.S. Poet Laureate. <laughs> you know, she's great. She's the first Native American to be our Poet Laureate. Like, there's a contribution. You want to honor us? Do something around her or Wes Studi, who's a Cherokee actor, a very famous Cherokee actor. He's going to be the first Native American in history to receive an Oscar on October 27th, right? Or your sports fans. I mean, you have amazing, you know, athletes like I cannot say enough about this young Cherokee pitcher, which I believe his name is Ryan Hensley, probably messing up his name, but he pitched for the Cardinals 
and he, they were playing the Braves. This is a couple weeks ago. They're in the playoffs. And right before the game, he told the media, I'm deeply insulted by all of these fans doing the tomahawk chat. I'm a Cherokee citizen. This makes us seem like we're cavemen, and this is deeply insulting and racist and harmful. And, you know, he said that before he went up on the mound. And he got a lot of criticism for it, you know. And I talked to Noda Begay, who's a former professional golfer. He's Navajo. And he said, you know, you don't understand Crystal Ward, a world of professional sports. That young man put his entire career on the line. But he stood up what was for right and because he was standing up against racism. That's like Jackie Robinson, right? I mean, in these moments. And it was good to hear that the Atlanta Braves took that seriously. And the next time he was up on the mound, they... They actually didn't put the tomahawk chop thing, whatever they give fans. They actually didn't hand it out that day and they didn't play the music, but they're not making that a permanent change. They only did it well for this one pitcher, but it was a big shift. And I'm hoping that, you know, somewhere, somewhere in that Atlanta Braves organization, that young man standing up got to someone and it was like the right thing to do. Right. And this in 2019, we should not be tolerating any sort of racism and bullying. So I really commend, you know, Atlanta for taking that step, but there's a lot more to do, not only within Major League Baseball, but certainly within professional football and other sports. I mean, speaking about people to celebrate, you know, you and I met through Kim Mraz and Bethany Yellowtail, who work over at Be Yellowtail, celebrating Native culture and fashion. What other companies or businesses positively reflect like general Native American cultures? Like, because Misash and I talk a lot about voting with our wallets. You can really support, you know, by paying. That's how you vote. So you, off the top of your head, no other businesses or corporations that you like in this realm? Oh, absolutely. And I just do have to just give love to my sisters, Bethany and Kim and B Yellowtail. I am so proud of those women and just the impact that they're having on not only fashion, but I mean, they're really, it's about narrative change. And it's also just been so exhilarating to also as a native person to be able to kind of wear this, these beautiful clothes. It's just, I can't say enough for them, but yeah, I mean, there's amazing native fashion designers and outlets. And I think the easiest thing I would say to do, and there's a wonderful woman, Dr. Jessica Metcalf, who has something beyond buckskin. And if you go to her website, she actually, it's sort of like a retail where she actually, it's from a lot of different native designers, right? Like just sort of different fashion and jewelry and different things. But she's actually got a wonderful list that she updates every year. It's a holiday shopping guide, but it's literally every sort of native person out there that's selling, you know, high fashion, street fashion, jewelry, shoes, clothes. I mean, but go to Beyond Buckskin. And it's that's what I love about what Jessica's doing is that she does have that online store. They've got great stuff. They've even got sort of like monthly little, like you can get kind of the part of their monthly club, right? Where you get sort of kind of neat, get to try different jewelry and different things. But then she's got this wonderful resource list that, you know, for holiday shopping. And I think that's really, you want to go. And, and there's also like food products, right? Too, like, so as you think about as we're getting the holiday season, I always love to give gifts of native food around the holidays. So like Lakota Foods is a wonderful, wonderful place where they do wild rice and you can buy, you know, Tonka bars and just like all sorts of like amazing foods that are actually made by native peoples. Jamie Okuma is like her fashion. We all just die on her Instagram, <laughs> you know, and just in terms of like the, 
the beautiful clothing, you know, high fashion. And so, you know, there's so much out there. There's another woman, Redberry woman on Instagram. Just, I think she was out at Paris Fashion Week. I mean, there's just major things happening in native fashion, but I think the easiest thing to just really tell folks is there's so many amazing native designers and clothing. And, you know, we want to encourage people to buy our things, right? But just to do it, you know, do it respectfully and to be able to tell someone this is a Bethany Yellow Tail, right? Or this is, you know, so-and-so designing. It's Navajo or it's Pawnee or wherever. To kind of really take a moment to learn about who is that artist that made that piece and to really give that recognition. And I think that's the line between a cultural appropriation and appreciating culture, right? And I think it's just out of that respect. So, you know, I know that's a, a question that sometimes come up. Should I even buy this stuff? And, you know, if they didn't want you to buy it, they wouldn't put it online, <laughs> right? But yeah, I would definitely encourage your listeners to go. Go to Beyond Buckskin and look at all the different things that they can access. That's really cool. I mean, and then also what we talked about, how little representation there is in the media of Native Americans. Like what portrayals of Natives in the media do you think are positive ones? What are good things to watch, places to go, where to learn? Yeah, boy, there's not a lot. (laughs) We're getting more. I mean, I think if you want to like really... From a news perspective, if you really you want to kind of just read more about Native people and, and covering major issues, Indian Country Today is the largest online news source on Native peoples, all Native journalists, and just really great coverage on a lot of different issues. It's just top-notch, um, just really proud, and it's really big, you know, in terms of their news, their stories, their perspectives, and they've actually just signed a deal with the Associated Press to kind of help the Associated Press do a better job of really sourcing Native content on Native issues. So that's a great place to go. I mean, I think, you know, there's some great podcasts, I think, also that have been out there that, you know, by Native people. I know Adrian Keene and Matika Wilbur, um, they have All My Relations. That's been a great podcast. There's another one called Wild Indigenous. That is a podcast of Indian Collective that's done by Sarah Sunshine Manning. That's a really good podcast. And yeah, I mean, I think those are just some like kind of sources for news and information. And just, you know, really, I think anything ever written by Native people, and I think too often in the media, we see articles about Native peoples, but they don't even interview Native folks, which is sort of crazy. (laughs) So that's, I think, for news and information, that would, those would be some of my suggestions. Speaking of news, I feel like you just mentioned Cherokee, but it reminded me of more current event stuff. Wasn't there a woman, Kim Teehee, from Cherokee Nation sent to the house? Like, can you talk about that? I don't know how much you know. I just remember seeing that being like, what is this about? I've never even heard of this. Yeah, and it's still unfolding, right? We're not quite sure how it's going to turn out. But, you know, that's what goes back into every tribe in this country signed treaties with the United States government, right? So it's just like, it's like when we sign a treaty with Russia or, the you know, Great Britain or, I mean, these are... Agreements with Ukraine, you know, that sort of stuff. <laughs> and, you know, a number of different tribes like the Cherokee Nation had it written into their treaties at the time that those treaties were signed that they would have a delegate that would participate in Congress. That is part of the treaty, right, that was signed. And so for whatever reasons, you know, and I don't know enough about the history, but this is really like where Cherokees really looked at their treaties again, like, hey, we get a seat. We're gonna activate that. Because our treaties, and I think, you know, oftentimes I think a lot of Americans aren't, don't know about the treaties that were signed, right? I mean, with the United States government and the tribes, I mean, that's how the land 
that we all have today. I mean, you're everybody sitting on cities are built is because of those treaties and what tribes had to give up and what was given to them in return. Right. And so those are real agreements. And so those are still enforceable treaties today. So I just think it's incredible that Cherokee Nation's like, that's right. We're going to make good on what's here in our treaty in terms of this seat. It's going to be interesting how that's honored. And I think it's a close thing to watch. And I was talking to a colleague of mine. He's an Indian, you know, Native American law specialist. And he said there's actually other tribes with that provision in the treaties as well. So I think everybody's really interested to watch and see how Kim is welcomed into Washington, D.C., but she's one of the first Native Americans that worked in the White House under President Obama. She's got incredible D.C. experience, so I think she will be a great addition. That's amazing. And then the other current event, I mean, I know you've been working, as you said, stuff keeps coming up in the media. Can you talk about the Dior campaign? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. I can't wait to like, it's just like, constantly. there's so many good things happening. Well, for those folks that don't know, I mean, so Johnny Depp, I mean, Sauvage is, is a brand of Dior that's been around for a while. And Johnny Depp has been sort of the face of Sauvage for a while. But they, for some reason, thought it was a really great idea. You know, Sauvage, like Savage, right? They, someone thought it was a great idea to kind of marry that brand with imagery around Native Americans. And so... They actually contacted Illuminated, I think it was back in February this year, and said, would you be, you know, we got contacted through kind of like a third party, but they were trying to get, you know, some native actors and stuff involved. And we wrote a letter to Dior and the production company and said, here's the 9,000 reasons why this is racist. You know, Sauvage, that's the connotations around that is as a slur, right? I mean, in the whole history behind why that is so incredibly racist and insensitive and, you know, and the company said, okay, thank you. And they kept going until they found somebody that would help them with it. And they did it anyways, and which is unfortunate. And it was just awful. I mean, from just the name and Native American imagery to, you know, they had a young Native woman sort of wearing some animal skin, I don't even know, kind of suggestively crawling towards, you know, Johnny Depp. Again, that sort of over-sexualization of Native women. And, you know, it just, everything about it was problematic. And it went up on the Friday before Labor Day and people lost their minds and it came down within six hours. And, you know, it was so powerful to see. I mean, Native people were like, uh, no, I mean, and just went hard at the company. But then to see how many non-Native people could see it, too. I mean, it was just so egregious that it was like one of those things that people were like, oh, yeah, that's wrong. And to see the company take it down was incredible, you know, and we were part of that organizing effort with along with so many people, you know, as well, but really came out strong against it. And, you know, it was hard to see because there were actually launch parties where they were reposting, you know, videos of people dancing around with headdresses and women half naked sort of, you know, and it was just the intent was clear no matter what the company was saying or what Johnny Depp was saying. And Johnny Depp was one of the biggest culprits, you know, around it. And so it came down quickly and We've been approached about possibly talking to the company about it. You know, we'll see, you know, we're not about letting them off the hook. I mean, this is, Dior is just the latest example. I mean, this is a larger issue within fashion about not only its cultural appropriation around native peoples and our culture and our ways, but just there's inherent racism. I mean, they're constant in the fashion industry. If it's not doing it to native Americans, it's doing it to African Americans or someone else. And, you know, I think we just really need to, to hold the fashion industry to a higher ethical standard about how it treats all people, right? Particularly people of color and Native Americans. 
Is that something, I mean, I get where if you see something, like you see your neighbor doing something offensive or wearing a headdress, you can speak up, right? You can say something to the one person there. When you see a campaign like that, you see something bigger picture. What's something that, aside from not buying that product, which is probably really important too, you know, voting with your wallet, like we said before, what's something that people can do? When you said a lot of people rallied and all, what do people do? Online. I think the thing to understand is how much our world has changed in terms of the power of social media, right? It has been a game changer in the industry of fashion, of media and entertainment, right? It used to be they could just sort of put out anything that they wanted, right? Whether it was a TV show, a film, fashion, and there wasn't a mechanism that was easy unless you wanted to back in the day, write a letter, <laughs> make a phone call, you know, organize a, a march or a protest. Social media allows us to organize within seconds, minutes, right? and really put forward our protests, our opposition to kind of really call out what's wrong and to see how quickly that protest came. I mean, people were just, the thousands and thousands of comments that went up on DR's page. It was incredible just to watch the momentum of it, but also watching people to share it, share it. And then those people were commenting. And I think that's really to understand, I do get annoyed with call out culture and social media sometimes too, you know, where it turns really ugly and we can be nasty to one another. I don't condone that, but boy, when we, it's about holding people like companies and things like that accountable, people accountable, you know, that's an incredible way to organize. And I think to really look at like quickly people already like hashtag boycott Dior, like other things, you know, just really putting comments up on those pages. You know what? The company does pay attention. And in fact, the company actually started going through and deleting comments. Um, if it tells you that somebody's actually really on the other end reading those and they didn't want them to be seen. So I think that voting with your wallet, but also it's really about standing up and saying no. And if that's putting comments up on social media, that's forwarding to your friends and your family saying, hey, you guys take a look at this. I'm really bothered by this. If you feel the same way, you should put a comment up too. You know, that's just one suggestion. I'm so excited. I know our time is coming to a close. <laughs> Are there any other things that we miss talking? I mean, we could probably talk for a lot longer, but if there's anything else that you feel like you wish people in the United States knew or thought about or you want them to do, is there anything? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's that constant reminder that, you know, there are, you know, more than 5 million Native people in this country. And I think it's always this just sense as we walk through our days and busy lives to just take a moment. And sometimes it can be just like an easy step of just, Google, who are the traditional native people of where you currently live? Because that was somebody's land. Where your home sits now, where your office sits, that actually was the land of a tribe. And I think just even that sense of place can be just such a powerful centering. But then, you know, knowing that there's Native American people that live in your town, there's tribes potentially, if, you know, we're in 35 states. You know, I think it's a little bit of that kind of easy, basic education, but understanding we're here today. And we are contributing amazing things to society. You know, we have challenges that we are facing that really need to be addressed. You know, we face, you know, serious civil rights abuses constantly. There's real issues, but that's not our only story. I mean, we are strong, we are resilient. We've got also amazing things happening at the same time and we're diverse. And so I think I would just really encourage people to kind of be open-minded and be curious. There is wonderful, you know, things where we talked about native fashion or there's, you know, new native films are getting ready to come out. HBO and Amazon and Netflix and others are actually starting to invest in buying, you know, native content. And I think 2020 is going to be a big year for that. But I think the final thing would be just encourage people, 
you know, follow us on social media, you know, go to, you know, Illuminatives, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and that, you know, we post stuff all the time that if you want to learn more and follow us, our website, Illuminatives.org, you can read more about our research, you could read, you know, we just uh, partnered with the Paramount Network and also the Yellowstone TV series to do a mini documentary. So we have a lot of different content. It's all about how do we amplify contemporary Native peoples and their voices and their stories. And, you know, it's just we all live in this world together <laughs> and we need to find ways that we learn about one another and respect each other. And so I just want to say thank you both for creating the space to visit today. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there. 